Hello and welcome to this episode of Talking Total Talent. This week I'm joined by Kevin Wheeler, Director at the Future of Talent Institute, Director of the ATC events here in Australia, um, an all-round knowledgeable uh, industry leader. Um, we get into a few topics. Um, we talk about the talent shortages and how uh, maybe there's a, a look at the talent organisations as part of the problem. Um, we uh, dive deeper into ageism uh, and how that seems to be a recurring theme, unfortunately. We also look at biasness and the recruitment process um, and we also explore all sorts of things around the future of talent and direction and makeup of the workforce as it relates to PAM, contingent um, and mobility as well. So very talking total talent centric. Okay, without further ado, let's get stuck into this episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of Talking Total Talent with me, your host, Ben Satchwell. And for episode 18, I am super excited to be welcoming Kevin Wheeler. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Very sunny morning here in Sydney, Australia. How about your side of the world? Yeah, we're actually pretty nice here as well. We've been, uh, even though it's still winter, technically we're in California, it's never really winter. So it's... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm a big... Big fan of California, big fan, so very good. All right, um, we'll get stuck straight in. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners who don't know you and uh, within the industry, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background and what work you're doing at the moment? Sure. Um, I run the Future Talent Institute, which is really a, a think tank and research group uh, that looks at, or tries to look at the emerging uh, trends in recruitment, talent acquisition, learning and development. And we've been doing this for about the last 15 years. Uh, I'm also a co-director of the uh, ATC, which is the uh, conference in Australia. And I do a lot of consulting with firms around the world in improving their recruitment processes and their learning and development processes. Awesome. So this gets me, there's, there's loads of directions and I know that we back and forth in advance, but I'll share with, with the audience the what prompted me to reach out direct. Um, you're obviously on my radar, but um, I read your article titled, um, and I'll just read it to get it right, Seven Ways We Created the Talent Shortage. Um, so uh, clearly that's gonna get me reading. <laughs> so there's uh, the perception around, wait, what? We we didn't create the talent shortage, did we? And, I, and I'll tell you, I'm gonna ask you a really open question around it, but I, I did make a note when I read the article, there was two bits that really struck a chord with me. Um, of the seven. Uh, one was um, around biased intuition-based hiring decisions and then ageism as well. Ageism comes up quite, quite a bit um, on some of the calls I have. So um, I suppose what was the, in the first instance, what was the trigger for you to write the piece um, and then expand a bit on it for those who haven't read it yet? Sure. Uh, you know, I think as I listen to people who are looking for jobs, uh, and look at the demographics and the profiles. Some of these people are incredibly competent people with really solid backgrounds and they can't find jobs. And you say, why can't they find a job? And you know, it really typically boils down to either they lack some relatively insignificant credential or experience or they're too old. And that's what it really boils down to in the most cases. Uh, or they're just the wrong quote unquote culture fit which is another one of my pet peeves, uh, which I think it's a, a shorthand way of saying, uh, we don't like you, your type in our company. 
So I think it's a, it's a combination of many things that has kind of triggered a sort of my anger, I guess, in a way at our industry and hiring managers for, for being so close to thinking differently and, and offering more opportunities to different kinds of people. Ageism as a topic, um, I, I share a, a personal experience. So my dad's retired now, um, uh, spent 35 years in the car industry at one company. Um, we, I grew up in the UK in uh, Coventry, which I would argue is equivalent in the same way as Chicago, um, to, to bring it to life a little bit more. Anyway, there's a massive recession and um, his layout was pulled out and um, he knew quite a few months out and he, even though there was actually work at the time, this was a while ago now, because uh, of his age at the time, he couldn't even get interviews. It, it was incredible. So I experienced that firsthand and I saw the angst. Ironically, they came through it and he kept, he kept his job. So uh, that was great news. But seeing it firsthand with ageism, can we just unpack that a little bit more? Like human nature aside and just, what is it from a process perspective that allows that to happen, do you think? Well, I think it's it's partly uh, sort of a, a cultural bias that's emerged. I think it's not new. It's probably been around for a long time. But this this belief that young people are more with it, more current in their thinking, that they have more energy, they'll they'll, they'll work harder, uh, and you know the bottom line ultimately is they're cheaper. Uh, and so when you combine all those things together, I can hire a new college grad for about half or, or even less than I'm paying an experienced professional. Uh, and they're gonna have lots of motivation and energy to learn quickly and do whatever I say. They'll be very obedient, I guess you could say, uh, to their manager, uh, where an older person might actually push back or offer their own ideas. Uh, and a lot of this is just um, uh, what a manager, many managers don't wanna deal with this. When I past role of mine, um, I was fortunate to be manager level, so sort of mid-range, and um, I had quite a few hires that, role, that were older than me that reported in. Um, and the one thing I learned was it is 100% how I was trained as a manager at that level that impacted it, 100%. So my attitude, everything came from um, the ability to understand servant leadership and what you can learn from them and how it will enable you to do your job better, but also setting them up to succeed. So based on that one experience, is is that a fair comment that the training of managers, younger managers per se, and by younger, I'm talking like 30s, early 40s. I'm not talking 20 something. So it's like, um, you know, there's a bit of experience there. Um, so is that a fair comment around training and then going back to culture as well? Does it feed down from the top as well? Yeah, I think it, it's, um, as far as the management training goes, it's, it's probably if you looked at the material as it was in whatever materials they hand out to new managers, I don't think you would see anything indicative of, of uh, ageism. But I think it's more of a philosophy or a culture that kind of um, gets imparted in a sort of a subconscious way to people in the, that are learning to be managers. And you emulate uh, others in the organization, right? And you see other people uh, that are young or hiring young people. Uh, here in Silicon Valley, it, it's really a problem in the fact that we have a very young uh, culture. If you went to San Francisco 
two years ago, not so much today, if you went there in 2019 and you walked down Market Street, you would be really, um, if you counted 100 people, probably three would be over 50 uh, and mostly in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, I'll give you a personal experience. I went into a startup uh, to meet with their head of recruiting uh, and I walked into this group that looked literally like a high school. Uh, every single person in this place was like, in my opinion, a kid, okay? And they offered me a chair. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of ageism. I've had to wait a few minutes and she said, oh, sir, would you like a chair? Uh, as if I'm old and you know couldn't stand there for, for a minute or two and wait for somebody. So just to give you an idea of, of what it's like. So imagine if I've been applying for a job or imagine if I'm being interviewed for a job. There's zero possibility that I would have gotten that job. Even though I might've been extremely qualified, might've been better than anybody there. Uh, and I think that's a secondary thing. Nobody likes to be in a way upstaged. And if you're a manager and you hire an experienced person, you, you have a sort of, an, you know, again, a subconscious fear that they might replace you. They're so good or they know more than you do or you're going to be embarrassed because of your lack of knowledge and, and their greater experience. So uh, there's a lot of, lot of complex psychology that goes into it. Yeah, complexity comes to mind uh, 100%. Um, yeah, and confidence and security and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Well. Um, let's dig a little bit more into the um, biased intuition-based hiring decisions. So, um, uh, I mean, there's loads of directions we can go in that. Um, where, where does it initially fall down? Is that the recruitment strategy? Is it the processes that are put in place? Is it the tools or technology they use? What, what would you? What would your commentary be around that? Yeah. Again, I think all of these things are very uh, tied up with culture and psychology, uh, and I think that. Um, you know, we have this, if you're in the technical world, the software world, it's a very masculine world, right? You, you really don't look at women as being included in that very often. You think about a coder, the first things that come to mind is some guy like Bill Gates or, or Steve Jobs or something. It's a guy, right? You don't have, the woman never comes to mind, right? And so if you're hiring people uh, that are into the high tech world of coding or software engineering, uh, a woman is going to really stand out as unusual, uh, less and less so, but in the past, for sure, it was the case. And therefore, therefore, automatically in your mind, a bit of a red flag, a danger to hire them. Uh, or you just don't think they have, you'll immediately bias that, oh, they obviously couldn't have the skills that this young guy has. These guys are definitely, they've been playing video games since they were eight years old. You know, they're really going to be super good. And this woman, I don't know where she learned this. Uh, so there's this innate kind of biases that come into it. And the same applies to uh, to uh, to uh, older people, same kind of a thing. How could an old person know coding? That's not possible. You know, it's just, this is a, a young person's game, right? So those those things all come into the play. Uh, but I think it's, it's, and it's also just our own personal biases about people that look different. You know, if you go into an Indian company, most people will be Indian. If you go into a Chinese company, most people will be Chinese. If you go into a white company, most people will be white. And it really takes a very conscious, deliberate effort to hire people that are different. Uh, it's just normal human behavior to hire people that look like you do. Uh, and it really takes an effort to change that and to break that mold. 
Uh, and, you know, companies often do pretty well at new grad hiring. And they'll say, gee, we hired huge percentage of minorities and women, but they never move up in the company uh, because the internal promotion policies are equally biased, okay? And uh, make it really hard for them to uh, get that next step up into management or whatever it is. So it's a, it's a big uh, set of cultural and uh, personal unconscious biases that come into it. And it really takes a very deliberate, enforced strategy to change that. So, do you, and just to tie a bow in this, this topic of conversation, is, is there any, any companies, and you don't have to necessarily name them, but you think are doing a good job of this, and there's a specific solution that um, we can take away and, and think about further? Yeah, I think that uh, there are a lot of companies, many, most of the big, well-known American uh, companies are making a, a real effort at that. I'm sure the same is true in Australia and, and other countries. They all have a, they have a, they have a focus to, to change the situation and make it better. And they've got better hiring practices. They're more inclusive. Uh, they're making sure they have um, slates of candidates that include more minorities, more women in them. Uh, if there's uh, companies I know that put in place rules like if every slate of candidates, there must be at least, you know, a certain percentage of women, minorities and so forth in that slate that's presented to a hiring manager. So uh, I think there's a lot of progress being made. But like I say, is this you're overcoming huge uh, barriers here, psychological barriers, cultural barriers, historical barriers. Um, uh, lots of things, and so it's going to take uh, time, and it's going to take really focused discipline. Uh, that people don't do it, they need to be punished for not doing it, you know? Uh, that people have to be, we have to force people to get hired. Uh, and that leads to the opposite problem, which is um, white people say we're being prejudiced against now, we're being excluded, or men are saying we're being excluded from these. So it's it's really a hard situation to deal it, with. It is, it 100% is. And for those not on the video, I'm white, mid-30s male, and incredibly privileged, not from a wealthy family, but I know where all my privileges come from. And my wife and I, we talk about it a lot, um, and we see it a lot, and we see those prejudices here in Australia as well. So it's, it's not lost on me from that position, 100%. So um, cool. The next, um, the next note I had, um, when I was uh, prepping for this was a really interesting concept you have that I haven't talked to anyone in the industry about, which is candidates, employees as investors, not as assets. And I'll tell you why, because I like the concept in the marketing world. So there's a, there's a concept around every piece of marketing you make is a, um, should be seen as an investment and the compounds versus just an asset that sits there and depreciates. So, um, the concept on a high level is, is pretty cool. Um, so, I, uh, I'd love you to explain it to me in the realms of um, people, basically, and, and the concept around that. I just look at an asset. Whenever I hear the word asset, I think of things. I think of equipment or machinery or computers or whatever it is, right? Uh, if you look at a spreadsheet of an accountant, the assets are all the the physical stuff in the company, right? I don't think we put the people on the spreadsheet in the asset column. We put it under labor or something, right? And yet when we talk about it, 
And when we, uh, in some ways, words are powerful and that they shape our thought. And when we, when we keep saying people are our most important asset, we're saying, yeah, you're the most important object I have in my company. I can hire you, fire you, dispose of you, depreciate you, all the things you do to an asset. And I say, that's totally a horrible way to think about people. And, you know, you really need to say, why did somebody come to work at your company? They didn't come there to be an asset. <laughs> they came there to contribute their skills and their abilities, because they think they're a good match for whatever your company is trying to do, and they expect a return on that investment. And the return on that investment is a salary and a nice place to work and a few other things, okay? So if you start looking at it as that investment ratio of uh, input, output, and a return on my investment, it changes how you think about people. It changes how you treat people, I think. And if I treat you as an investor, I'm going to treat you a lot more nicely. Mm. And if I think of you as a, as a desk or a chair or a computer, okay, uh, it's a lot more difficult to lay off uh, an investor than it is to lay off an asset. Right? It's, it's a lot more difficult to think uh, you know, negatively about something that you depersonalize. And I think that the term asset is just depersonalized uh, HR in a way and, and co co corporate culture in a way and recruiting, because uh, I just don't think about people as assets at all. Uh, and I know I've, I've talked to many people and they, they go through contortions to tell me that, oh yes, people are really assets. If you look at the dictionary, you can see that they're blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying, oh, you can justify anything if you want to, right? But I still think the average person thinks an asset is a thing. And I think it's really bad to think about people as things. Yep. There's a bit of chatter at the moment around um, human resources. Is it human resources? Is it talent? Is it people and culture? Uh, is it human capital management from the big four side of things? Um, I do believe words are very powerful, 100%. Um, what, where are we heading with this? What terminology is right, in your opinion, from a sort of futurism perspective? Uh, it's it's um, it's it's interesting. I think we're we're going to see, we are already seeing a, this pandemic has been in some ways a really wonderful thing, in that it's really opened up a much broader spectrum of people uh, to an opportunity for employment. It's a much more, well, let's put it this way, it's easier to hire people who are older or different if you don't actually see them every day, if they're on a computer screen or uh, a voice or uh, whatever it is. Um, and some people say that's depersonalizing us, but I think in a way it's giving people, many people an opportunity they would not have maybe had if they had to meet you in person or physically. Uh, it's allowing families to stay in their culture wherever they're comfortable rather than having to, to move to another place. Um, so there are many benefits to uh, what's happened. I think that's gonna continue and be a positive trend and I hope that the uh, work from home, which I think is probably here to stay uh, to a large degree for a long time, if not forever. It was already starting to happen. It was just this really accelerated it tremendously. Uh, and I'm, it gave a lot of skeptics um, the opportunity to, to be proven wrong. Okay? And uh, to say, hey, this actually does work for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so we'll end up with a hybrid work model, I'm pretty sure, where people 
may get together face to face occasionally, maybe maybe all time. I, I really like Workday's new classification of workers that they have now publicly made possible. That they have three classifications: uh, flex, um, I guess I forget uh, flex, um, remote, and the equivalent of permanent. I forget what they call it. Yeah, I, I, I remember what you mean because the the fully permanent are like five percent. They reckon I read the same thing announcement from them. Yeah, yeah. and most people will take that um, that hybrid model where they'll work uh, a couple days a week in an office somewhere. But that's that's also good. It doesn't have to be headquarters. It could be a satellite office somewhere. It could be uh, a local uh, small area where a few people get together, uh, meet or or where teams meet and so forth. Um, so I think that's going to continue. I think this. Um, I think more and more we're going to see this idea of uh, a work ecosystem, uh, which I'm going to be writing about pretty soon. It's not a new word, but uh, I think a lot of people don't quite understand it. But I think it means this real. Not everyone, or in fact, maybe most people will not be permanent employees. That you'll have a huge group of contracted, uh, part-time, uh, freelance employees who make up maybe the bulk of your workforce with a small core of permanent people. Uh, and there's nothing new in that model either. Charles Handy, uh, which you may know, he's a British uh, management thinker. He wrote several books back in the 70s and 80s. He's quite elderly now. I think he's in his 90s. But he, he had this model in the 70s, of what he called the shamrock organization, which had the leaves of a shamrock and one leaf is a permanent worker, one leaf is the gig worker equivalent, and one is the contractor or consultant. Um, and so I think that model has been out there. I think it's happening now. Uh, it took 30 years to get there or 40, but it's happening. I think that will continue. I think you're going to see a lot smaller organizations forming simply because they're not going to have all those support people that many companies have on board for baggage. And that's going to read, and that's going to be partly possible with automation. And there's no doubt that um, every year we get more sophisticated with automated tools and AI. And I don't personally think they're going to replace uh, most of the workforce, but they're going to definitely change it. And it's going to uh, take away a lot of the routine work that used to be done by people. Like, uh, you know, the best analogy I have is. There aren't many typists or sonographers anymore uh, because we figured out how to automate that or give you your own computer computer to do it yourself. Uh, and I think the same is going to continue to evolve. Many jobs that we give to people today, we're not going to give to people in the future. They'll be done with uh, automated tools uh, and people will be freed up to do things that we haven't thought of yet. A lot of new things are going to emerge, things that we have no no idea what they're going to be. Um, but we're still going to be using people, but hopefully in much more flexible and more meaningful ways than we've used a lot of people in the past. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, my wife and I, and we are fascinated to see what jobs they'll do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a totally different world for them. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah, I'm sure they will openly mock uh, my attempt at podcasts in 2020. <laughs> so, you did what, Dad? <laughs> yeah, they were like, "Wait, what was that camera you were using?" 
<laughs> where, where, holograms? <laughs> yeah, where was your hologram assistant and all that sort of thing? And yeah, what have you? So, um, I got a couple of follow-up questions on that one. Um, yeah, we're we're definitely observing a trend towards uh, percentage as uh, contractors of the yeah. workforce. So again, nothing new, but accelerated. Um, a question around that engagement, though. So. Um, decades back that's say staffing agencies would handle a lot of that and then we saw the rise of um trying to think what the workplaces the, the platforms would be in the us but here in australia we have things like something called expert 360 and freelancers fibers of this world sure. yeah. um with the growth do you expect brands to um directly engage with continued workers and contractors given their sheer volume and impress their employer brand on them What's your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that, you know, we've got a whole lot of structural stuff to work our way through legally and, and policy-wise and otherwise, because right now a lot of things that we know is possible, we just can't legally do yet, or it's very challenging to do. But that will change. The law always lags behind the social trends. Uh, that's normal historical stuff that will it will happen. Um, so I really believe that um, companies will figure out the right mix of employees that they ought to have as an organization. And it may be that, you know, these jobs will all be outsourced to a third party. These jobs will be automated. These will be done by uh, contractors or consultants. Uh, other jobs will, these, but these 25 jobs have to be people that come here every day and that are permanent employees, right? So they'll 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 come up with formulas around this, and 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 there'll be rules of thumb that guide this and so forth. Uh, but we're just early early stages in you know figuring this out, and it's going to be really messy, and there's going to be legal challenges and and labor union challenges and and yeah. all sorts of things that are going to happen. But that's all part of the that's all part of the the history of progress, I guess. Is you have to figure these things out and come to some sort of agreement, find common ground uh, and and figure out what laws need to be changed or modified to deal with that. So it will be, we're in a transition period. I mean, your kids will reap the fruit of probably our struggles over the next decade or so. Um, but hopefully by the time their employee employment age, uh, things will have changed a great deal. Yeah. 100%. One of the things I'm, um, so we, we I really share quite a few opinions there uh, with you. One of the things I'm formulating in my mind is that uh, I'm trying to understand what the makeup of the workforce will look like in the future. Um, I don't know. Not, I certainly don't have the experience in research of yourself. Here, here's a, a theory I've got that I'd like to test on you for the purpose of the podcast. So um, just from what I'm seeing in my own world and, and have done in, in various jobs, I think with, with relation to the mix of workforce, what we'll see is in that core, a group of people who intimately know the customers. So what I mean by that is they understand their world, they understand everything they want, they understand the intent behind their behaviors, like they are as close to them as it can be, they could have been past customers, things like that. And then where the value is from the gigs, consultants, contractors, whatever you want to call them is, these, these people have um, expertise in doing a task or a strategy or a framework of some sort that is replicable in your business and they come in for a set period and they set you up with that framework and then they go and do that in another business that way retaining the closeness to your customers um loads of things have impacted my thinking about that 
I just want to test it with you. <laughs> I want you to either tell me that it's pie in the sky or sort of what's your thoughts around that? I think you're right on target. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that customer intimacy, uh, understanding who your customers are, having the right strategy, those are going to be the kind of people you're going to want as permanent employees. They're the ones that are going to be really valuable to your company. Uh, the ones who are the creators, the innovators are going to be really critical. But I take things like the things that the jobs that we put up as the most hard to find, most well-paid, most status, things like coders, software engineers, whatever it is, those are things that expert systems will take a lot of that away. Uh, we're not going to need a lot of people in those fields, even though that's a pretty radical comment I'm making, and probably many would disagree, but I think you're going to find anything that has formulas or rules, particularly engineering is a good example, or code writing, um, a lot of that can be done by machines and will be done by machines or expert systems, which are uh, machines that are created and built by experts, okay, that help guide other experts. So if I want to know what kind of steel to use in my new skyscraper of X number of stories, I may not need to hire an engineer. I may just need to go to a software program and it will tell me um, that because that stuff is calculable and, and pretty well understood. So the number of experts that we need is probably going to go down and the ones we have will be augmented with technology tremendously. So that means that some of these professions that today are not so high status, good communicators, uh, good, good uh, human connectors, uh, solid um, people people, those are going to rise up in status. Those are become much more uh, important jobs for organizations to have. Customer intimacy fits into that category of people that communicate well, that understand people, that influence well. Uh, so a whole new set of skills come into the, move into that status level uh, away from things like engineers and coders and so forth, which today are in that level. Doesn't mean they're not important, doesn't mean they're not necessary to some degree, but it will be less of them. It's you know, one of my other pet peeves is we put too much stress on STEM education, science, technology, education, and math. It's important. I'm not trying to say STEM is not important. It's really important. But it's one component of a well-rounded education. And if all you have in your background is STEM, you're, you're, you're not a complete human being, in my opinion, all right? You need culture. You need languages. You need history. You need the arts uh, to round that out. And if I had to say what is enduring, uh, most of the stuff we call engineering today will be gone in five years. It's not necessarily uh, lasting. The core concepts will remain valid, but you know whether we use this this programming language or that one, going to change every every six months. Right. So what's really important is do I have those fundamental skills? as a person to be flexible and go wherever I need to go. And, and that's what's really going to be the differentiating skill. So I think companies are going to be looking for those well-rounded people. Uh, in a way, it's returning back to uh, what Oxford and Cambridge turned out 100 years ago, which was kind of this massive generalist who could do almost anything because they had a solid foundation of 
skills, languages, culture, history, um, science, and math that they could apply to whatever field they needed to apply it. So to me, that's the key to creating the kinds of, of people we're going to need for the future. Uh, the things that your kids hopefully will get a rounded education in uh, and not be just focused on, I'm just going to become an engineer and I'm only going to learn the math and science or whatever it is, right? Uh, which is where I think we've fallen into the trap today of forcing kids into these fields and they're missing out a lot in art, music, history, all the other things that are really critical. So, um, but I think your idea of how it's going to work is pretty much on target. Um, I think the, the challenging piece will be what happens to those experts. Uh, do they become consultants, which I think they probably will. Uh, I think companies aren't going to hire a lot of them. They're going to say, if I need an engineer for a project, I'll just hire one off the freelance marketplace, right? Um, if I, which is what we're doing in many cases today. Um, I've got a good friend. He's a structural engineer. He has his own company. Uh, he's hired all the time by different contractors, cons uh, construction companies, uh, builders, architects. Uh, to do the engineering for their buildings. He doesn't work for any of them. He works for himself. And I think that's going to become a, a common model uh, for that expert uh, space. That's interesting. So the, the famous book, um, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by uh, Carnegie, and um, had a big impact on me. I read it quite young. And um, not to make more friends or to want to influence people, but you know, you, as, a, as a growing adult, you need to work these things out. And the, the thing that always has stuck with me, well, there's two, um, is um, the way to have authentic conversations is to genuinely anchor on something that you're both interested in. And the key to that is to keep going and find that mutually interesting bit, and then you'll have a good conversation that you'll both get value from. Um, so great, so that's good. But the only way that you can do that is by having a broader mind. So not being an expert, like you said, say in STEM or science, technology, et cetera. But it's really interesting that the arts or the culture or whatever it is that makes a person tick enable you to have a more fulfilling life as well. So I, I like that whole premise. Um, it's sort of something that's me. The other thing is names. Always remember someone's name. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, yeah uh, that's, that's the other thing. Just, that's, 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 my, that's my weak point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's which has become my strength since the days of Zoom because we have both our names on. So it's uh, yeah, you can <laughs> God, the name is there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, related to the makeup of the workforce, um, one of the trends actually. Uh, so looking at permanent employees now that we've seen here in Australia, and I, I can't speak for North America, um, is a real focus on internal mobility. Um, in my day job, I do a fair bit of work with the public sector. Um, there's been a real shift with state governments and federal governments, whichever level here, um, looking at their, their uh, employee pool and where can they uh, redeploy, essentially. Um, uh, there's a lot of challenges around that, so talent visibility, uh, actually understanding the people on a deeper level rather than the job they do, etc. And they've done a fantastic job here. Um, comments on internal mobility, is it here to stay or is it just the flavour of the month? No, no, that's definitely here to stay. Uh, I think it will be. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty, I think most organizations are saying it's, it's easier and it's better from a, a culture perspective, if you want to put it that way, to hire people we already know that fit into our organization and that do, do well. 
Uh, I think what many companies are lacking for two things. One is the HR policy that makes that possible and easy for people to make those moves. You know, if it's easier to quit and get a job outside than it is to get one in, inside, uh, you're already, you're already, you're done. Okay, you're already done because uh, in many companies, it's an onerous process to go through it internally. You've got to tell your boss you're going to be looking for a job. You've got to, you know, you've got to apply to these people. You maybe have to be interviewed again for the job. You might even in some companies have to submit a CV again. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous process that many companies have. So number one is HR policies that make it easy. And the second thing is uh, development programs. And so many companies uh, in the past decade or two uh, decimated their learning and development functions. They really pretty much got rid of them or reduced them to minimal levels. Um, if they kept it at all, they probably kept management training or leadership training, and that was about it. But there's very little personal development. There's very little career pathing. Uh, there's very little, uh, if I want to move from HR to finance, fundamentally impossible, right? unless uh, I go back to school and get a degree or whatever. Um, rather than having an internal sort of training program, an apprentice program, uh, internships, rotations, whatever it is, but there's all sorts of opportunities for companies to develop people. And historically, companies like in America, like General Electric and IBM, did an incredibly good job at that, uh, amazing job at that. And uh, my wife is an English major, and they hired her in to be a software trainee, uh, ultimately sent her to school for three degrees, and she became a top-level software engineer. Uh, now, how many companies would do that today? I, I can think of only almost none that would actually do that today and invest that kind of money in somebody. And the reason they said, oh, so people will just quit. Well, my wife didn't quit uh, because of the loyalty she felt, really, yeah. to them. And, and the fact that she knew there were continuing opportunities, right? So why would I leave for the unknown when I'm pretty comfortable here and I know that I'll have a, a career here and a, and a path to stay? So I think companies have to think about that. Uh, how do you make it uh, safe? Uh, relatively smooth and easy for people to make those moves? And how do you invest and what do you invest education and training in? So, like, yeah, I don't know who to attribute the quote to, but it's does the rounds on social media and stuff like that. It's the whole, the CFO says, this is a big investment in the people. What about, what if they leave? And the CEO says, um, if we don't make the investment, what if they stay and we don't exactly. have yeah, that's a great quote. I, I remember that. It's a good one. And it goes back partly to my thing about assets or investors, right? Yes. yes. If you really think about people as investors, then you're willing to, you know, spend a little bit to get a bigger return on, on both of your investments, right? So it's a win-win uh, if you do that. And sure, some people will leave. There's no question. But if you have a good environment uh, and a good working uh, culture, I think more people will stay than will leave. Again, people only leave when the ROI is greater outside. That's the only reason they leave. If the ROI is good inside, then why do they? Why would they leave? Yeah, I was always taught 
um, from a leadership perspective to understand uh, people who wear their heart on their sleeve as well, so they don't do a raging quit moment. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, exactly. that's the only other lesson I got taught. Um, I'm, I'm mindful that we're slowly creeping towards time, and that you've got a, another call after this one. So one of the um, one of the closing things I wanted to finish on with you was um, I saw a really awesome futurist speak once, and uh, he told this story about um, he showed this image on the screen, and it was you're in a car and the uh, rain is pouring down and um, you just can't see the car in front of you. Um, and then the wipers at one speed, you can just about see uh, a few lights and then you move the speed up and you have more lights and therefore more indicators of the future that's in front of you. So the whole premise is around, you look for indicators for the future. Um, you run the Future of Talent Institute, <laughs> a really broad question to you. Any? closing thoughts or comments on what the future of talent will look like, any trends that you're observing? Well, I think I mentioned a few already as we were talking. I think I think clearly um, we're going to see an continuing impact, a big-time impact of artificial intelligence and algorithms on our future, whether we like it or not. Um, I think we're going to have to struggle with what, what that means for privacy and all these other things. But I think that these, I just see these trends as inevitable, how they get played out, uh, how the law deals with them, those are issues that uh, I don't know how they'll be resolved, but I know they will be resolved uh, and we'll get there. So we're going to continue to move forward there. I think we're going to find uh, continued uh, divergence in the kinds of people in the workplace. So rather than everybody wanting to be a permanent employee, I think you're going to find that lots and lots more people don't want to be that. Uh, they're going to find alternative ways to uh, make a living, <clears throat> to satisfy their life. Um, you know, I see here in America the trend to move to the suburbs or rural areas now that you can work from home because it's a lower cost of living. I don't need to earn as much money as I used to earn to have an okay lifestyle. Uh, so I think that you're going to see a more, I call it right-sizing of our life. Uh, and get out of this mad materialistic race to you know have more money and more a better fancier car and a bigger house than you have. Uh, I think that's kind of not what the new generation is going to be focused on. I think they're going to look for more, um, not necessarily back to nature, but just a more simpler life. I guess you could call it that way. So I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to see accelerate and companies are going to have to deal with that. Organizations will have to deal with that. Um, I think this um, pandemic has really changed uh, how we look at our own vulnerability, <laughs> our own mortality. Uh, you know, and boy, I could get this thing and be dead in a day or two. Changes how you look at the world. And, you know, I think for the, for most of our lives, yeah, except unless you get, you know, cancer or something like that, you, you, you never think about dying. Yeah, it's going to be an up, upward trend. You know, your life's all good. Every disease can be cured or fixed to some degree or another. And I think we're seeing it now a little more mortality. That changes your, your attitude, I think, about things. and makes uh, family maybe more important, makes a simpler life more critical and more important. So that's, that's all woven into this into this sort of subconscious tapestry that's being laid out here, uh, I think, in the next few years. Uh, and I think that um, uh, the globalism, which I really am in favor of, 
but I think it's going to take a different tone. It's not going to be this mad dash to travel everywhere and see everything and check every box and that I've been to every country and eaten every cuisine. I think it's going to be much more um, more carefully chosen as to where we go. And the global globalization will be temperate, I think, because of political issues, uh, disease issues, other things. So it'll be a little more um, unfrenzied, I guess the right word is. Uh, I think the airlines are already anticipating that. The hotel industry is anticipating that. So it's pretty interesting what that's going to do. So those will change uh, a lot of things as well. Uh, so there's just lots of, I think the big trends are going to be socioeconomic. I think that's where you're going to see the most. I think big changes in how we live, how we work, how we play, uh, what we think is important. Those, those are the things that are really the trends of the future, I think. Uh, great, great points to finish on. Kevin, you've been an absolute gent. Thank you for taking the time to join me on, on the podcast and really appreciate all your insights and the value that you added. Thanks for the opportunity, Ben.